You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. You don't know me. My name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, at Refuge. Excited to continue our time in worship today by uh, jumping into the Word. And and by jumping into the Word, I mean we're going to be continuing our sermon series called Follow Me, uh, where we're really going to be thinking about the the rhythm of discipleship. Now, uh, hear me, you may have noticed that we're gradually starting to get back to a semblance of normal here uh, when it comes to our life. That does not mean that we're normal. We're obviously all uh, kind of experiencing the, the kind of surge in COVID together, right? We're all back up in here mass a few weeks ago, it was like, what are mass, right? And so we all know that there is, there's definitely some, some two-step forward and one-step back type of situations with the whole COVID thing. But nonetheless, there still seems to be this slow progression toward normal. And with that progression, there are uh, uh, reinserts back into these normal rhythms of life. Uh, there's social rhythms. You may have been hanging out with family a lot more. You may have uh, gotten together to watch maybe like an Austin FC game last night where they lost and it was devastating and people are still heartbroken about it this morning. Not me necessarily. But, um, you know, like all that right there, it's all starting to kind of feel like, okay, we're getting back into normal things. Yet, in the midst of all that excitement, we can lose track of the fact that there are spiritual rhythms we're called to jump back into. Right, spiritual rhythms that 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 cause us to to pursue and exalt the person of Jesus, that sustain us spiritually, that bless the community around us. And so, what we're doing through this sermon series, through the one that we just went through uh, last time, and then what we're going through uh, with this upcoming sermon series after Follow Me, is just kind of thinking about some of those spiritual rhythms. And the one we're thinking about this week and through the sermon series is the rhythm of discipleship, the idea of allowing Jesus to shape our priorities, our values, um, our schedule, the thing that we hold, the things that we hold most dear, right? This is the idea of discipleship. Discipleship, obviously, for a lot of us is, is a very Christian word, yet the reality is we are discipled by things all the time. We allow all kinds of stuff to influence our mind, to, to really set priorities for us, right? We encounter this idea constantly. And so what we're thinking about through the course of this is really the idea of how do we allow Jesus to prioritize in our life certain rhythms that are going to be spiritually healthy for us, our community, for those around us. And the aspect of life, the, the rhythm that we're really going to think about, I mean, within the idea of discipleship today, uh, is the idea of our social lives, okay, our social lives, hanging out with friends, hanging out with family, getting out there and doing your thing, you know, like, I understand we're hanging out with friends, I've seen a lot of us, uh, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not very social media active, but when I get on, I see that people live lives, right, I don't suspect that you go home and just wait at home to come back here next Sunday. I suspect that Monday through Saturday, you do something. Uh, that's reasonable to think. And some of us do a little more. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us are introverts. Um, but nonetheless, we go out and do something with our lives, right? We, we hang out with people. We develop relationships, all that good stuff. But here's the thing. The idea of our social lives is a bit of a, uh, uh, I'm not going to say tricky, but, but yeah, I'll say tricky. Tricky subject. Because before the pandemic started, there was already a lot of, um, faux pas and a lot of uh, a lot of downsides to people's social lives, right? Prior to the pandemic starting in 2018, uh, an article by the Barna Research Group said that the average American adult had between two and five friends. Yet in those relationships, there was largely a feeling of dissatisfaction. 
dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction led to nearly one in five adults struggling with loneliness. Not just experiencing it, hear me, struggling with it. Feeling like, man, I'm I'm wrestling with loneliness a lot. And, And get this, that was before the pandemic. That was 2018. Since the pandemic, in a recent Harvard University survey, um, out of the group surveyed, nearly 36%, one-third, over one-third, slightly, described feeling lonely, hear this, almost all of the time. Since the pandemic, going from one-fifth, now to one-third, but not just struggling, but now saying one-third of the adult population potentially feels lonely virtually all of the time. And we have Christians, we're not, we're not excluded from these ideas here. You can testify. I'm sure that all of us have experienced over the course of the past year and a half, right, a, a sense of loneliness, a sense of sadness, kind of that burden that's come through the past year and a half in the pandemic. And now, as we get back just a, a little bit to more of a normal social rhythm, there's a threat on the horizon. And hear me, I'm not talking about a new variant here. I'm not talking about COVID at all, though that is clearly still still a threat. We want to make sure we get that clear. Every time I like type something like, oh yeah, normal or no more threat, I always want to make sure we reinstate. Like, hey, COVID's still real, right? We're masked up. We get that. But there's a threat, and it's not necessarily that, but rather the threat is a huge group of lonely people stepping, stepping back into normal social lives, looking to friends, both new and old, to cure their loneliness and other heart issues that are present, replacing healthy, mutually caring friendships with consumeristic, self-centered, unhealthy relationships. You get what I'm saying? As we come out of our funk, as we come out of this space where we've wrestled with loneliness and now there's an increase in loneliness, people are feeling lonely almost all of the time, there's a big threat that as we come out of that, we can come out longing for friendship, longing to cure loneliness to the point that we begin to feel consumeristic and self-centered in our friendships and our relationships and replace healthy relationships now with this sort of self-serving, self-centered relationship. How do we change this? How do we stop that, though? Right? Well, I think I have a, a couple of thoughts. The first is to accept that friendships don't cure everything, right? Relationships don't cure everything. They're, they're necessary for fighting loneliness. They're good things, but, and we aren't called to be alone, right? The scriptures clearly tell us that community is necessary, yet God is the one that makes us whole. Even if he uses relationships and friendships to do it, God is still the one that makes us whole. Right? He is the author of our healing, and so we have to stay focused on him. But, but secondly, another major thing to help us fight this temptation is to also understand the purpose of friendships in our lives. Right? To understand the purpose of friendships, the purpose of relationships, why he puts them into our lives, and, and how he uses them in order to bring about healing in a very real way. A purpose that ends with Jesus being glorified, our friendships being healthier, stronger, closer, and and ultimately, we hope, ends with people that don't know Jesus coming to know him and being made new and given new life. Right? Understanding that idea and wrestling with that idea as we go through our social lives. And this morning, I want to invite us to consider that purpose, to, to think about that purpose a little more critically. Okay, by looking at a story of Jesus and a man named Zacchaeus, what we, what we read just a little bit ago. And what I want us to take away uh, this morning is this idea that it's through vulnerability, compassion, and grace, not perfection, 
that relationships serve their purposes in our life. Let's say that one more time. It might be up here for you. I'm not sure. It's through vulnerability, compassion, and grace, not perfection, that relationships serve their purpose in our lives. Again, we're going to be working through Luke 19, 1 through 10, and we're going to take a look at two rhythms in relationships, right? Two practices, two relational practices uh, that, that I'm seeing, that, that we're going to see in the book of Luke right here uh, that I think will help us here. Uh, and the first one is to make room for brokenness. That's going to be the first thing we think about when we look at the text, to make room for brokenness. And the second relational uh, characteristic is, is this, loving one another in brokenness. Loving one another in bro. Those are going to be the two things that we're going to really pull out of Luke 19, 1 through 10. And they're going to help us establish this idea of how compassion, vulnerability, grace are the things that actually make uh, relationships impactful, meaningful, that, that really fit God's design for relationships. And so to get started today, let's go ahead and jump into our text, Luke 19, 1 through 10. I want to read it again, then say a short prayer to get us reintroduced to the text after hearing me spiel on for 10 minutes. Uh, Here we go. It says in verse one, he entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. And all who saw it began to complain. He's going to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay it back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. As we get started uh, this morning through the rest of our time, will you say a quick prayer with me? Uh, Father, thank you for this, this, uh, these next few moments where we get to engage in your word as we open uh, the very words that you gave us to know you. Allow us to open our hearts and to receive from you. Empty me of anything that is me, Father. Let me be able to uh, focus on you and what you desire for your people to know and understand. And so, Father, we uh, bless this time. We place it in your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, can I get an amen? All right, let's go. So as we jump in, y'all hear me say this pretty much most weeks, but we got to set the scene, all right? We got to set the scene uh, because context, uh, it's like location in Austin real estate. It's everything, all right? Context, context, context. Uh, You see, the Bible contains wisdom and truth that's relevant today, that's relevant eternally, but hear me, it's wrapped up in first century ideas that oftentimes they just, we just completely lose them right, as 21st century Americans. And so we have to do a little work before we get started to set the scene to help us understand what's really happening here. Okay, the text that we're reading from tells us at the very beginning that Jesus entered into a city called Jericho. Now, Jericho in the first century uh, was about 15 miles east of Jerusalem. It was an important town because it was kind of like a, a bridge or a rest stop for those traveling from the region east of Jericho heading to Jerusalem west. Okay, so if you have uh, the region of Perea out here, uh, I may have said that wrong, I ain't gonna lie to y'all. And then you're coming this way, right? Then you hit Jericho and then you keep going down to Jerusalem about 15 miles west. And for the Roman government, this was an extraordinarily important little town. 
because it meant that it was a perfect place to tax goods that were traveling from one region into the major city of Jerusalem at the time. Uh, they taxed them and then they gained a lot of obviously resources. Uh, they were funded. The government saw this as an extraordinarily important place because it was a place that they made money. Uh, now, in that scene, remember, this is why it makes perfect sense now that in enters a man named Zacchaeus, who the text describes not just as a tax collector, but as a chief tax collector. And so imagine Zacchaeus basically as like a successful businessman, right? Not, not just a lowly or an entry. Uh, lowly is not an entry. If you are in an entry-level position, I do not mean you have a lowly position. All right, I caught myself there. I want to just swerve around and get around that one, right? But rather high up the chain is what I'm saying, all right? As a chief tax collector, you're thinking even more of like a district manager, if that makes sense. Except the success of him and his homeboy's business is dependent on charging people more taxes than the Romans required, keeping the difference as their profit. So if the Romans say, here's an amount, their business basically says, all right, we're going to charge this much past that amount. Whatever the difference is, we're keeping that for ourselves. Seems shady. Am I right? It seems a little shady. Uh, well, the people around Zacchaeus thought it was shady, too. They, uh, they did not, no one was looking at Zacchaeus thinking like, man, this guy's so smart, right? This guy came up with an amazing business plan. I bet his business plan would have floored us when he presented it to all of his early investors, right? Like, no one was thinking that. Everyone was looking at Zacchaeus, and in reality, they hated him. They despised him. They saw him as a traitor and a conspirer with Rome against his very own people. And despite his success, this would really have been Zacchaeus's scarlet letter, the thing that branded him before everyone uh, as someone to avoid, someone to detest. Children would have grown up, even as young uh, children, with their parents teaching them, don't trust that man, right? The newcomers to the town, maybe going to live there, uh, would have really been told and learned that guy is not a good guy. He is to be avoided, right? Everything uh, that you could imagine, right, really pointed to this one aspect of who he was. This was his life narrative, if that makes sense. If you were going to choose a life narrative, a story that defines Zacchaeus, this would have been the story. The traitor who now works with Rome to pillage and take and steal from his own people. That's what would have been his life narrative. If you can think of it like this, most of us have our feelings about the IRS. It's just like that times a million. All right. I thought that would hit way harder. Apparently we're all fine with the IRS in here. Very surprising, but let's move on. And, and here's the thing. It's reasonable at this point to question if he would have accepted this reality about himself as well accepted the idea that no one respected him, that no one saw anything in him, because when he was faced with the crowd that stopped him from coming or seeing Jesus, uh, he does something kind of unthinkable in his culture, and he climbs a tree. He climbs a tree. Now, here's the thing. Uh, in the first century, uh, sorry, for us as 21st century Americans, we read that story, and we're just like, yeah, okay. He climbed a tree. Yeah, like, I get it. Uh, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Yet here's the thing. For a formal culture like first century Judea that had customs and had uh, um, ex like social expectations that far exceed what we know, this would have been an extraordinarily dishonorable thing to do. Uh, something that really children did that would have caused him to stand out. That would have made him seem lesser than, maybe out of his mind or kind of inherit some measure of shame. It would have produced scoffs and head shakes 
to go along with the disdain and, 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 and kind of the hatred that people felt for him already. And here's the thing. I can't really try to compare it to anything in our world because there's no one-to-one comparison in our culture. We live in such an informal culture that there's not really anything we think of where it's like, oh, if someone did that, it would be such a social weird thing that we would look at them and be like, oh, that's horrible. Like we don't live in a culture like that at all. So it's almost hard to grasp how seeing this grown man just climb up a tree would, would, would really uh, uh, evoke such heavy emotions of being like, God, this dude is just, oh, I can't stand him. Right? Like, but that really would have been the response. A, a, a seemingly universal, I can't stand that guy. And it's in this scene that Jesus is entering. That's the scene Jesus is entering. A hated tax collector in the middle of making a fool of himself in a tree. Yet that is exactly where Jesus doesn't just see Zacchaeus. Hear me, it's where he meets Zacchaeus. In other words, Jesus doesn't wait for him to come down from the tree in order to go and find him. Jesus doesn't wait for the crowd to dissipate before he goes and talks with Zacchaeus so he could avoid the social faux pas of associating with such a hated and disdained person. No, it's exactly in this specific environment with the hated tax collector uh, in the middle of a tree making a fool of himself that Jesus comes to meet Zacchaeus. That's where Jesus meets him. Friend, listen to me. Look at me. If you've ever questioned whether Jesus desires to meet you in the middle of your mess or wait for you to come to him, I hope this story answers your question. Jesus never waits in order for us to become something that's worth coming to him, but rather he goes and meets us in the middle of our mess, lovingly, affectionately, compassionately, goes to meet us and meet us where we are. But in addition to that, it's here that I believe Jesus shows one of the first rhythms in relationships that that is so critical uh, for us as followers of Jesus. And that that's when we mentioned earlier, right, to make room for brokenness, to make room for brokenness in our relationships. Hear me. We don't know how much Zacchaeus knew about Jesus. We knew that he knew enough to count making a fool of himself worth it. He knew that much. And apparently that was enough. And we also don't know how much Jesus knew about Zacchaeus. Right. We, we know that he knew enough to look at him in the tree and to call him by name. So, again, he must have known enough. Here's what that tells us. Brokenness, again, doesn't stop Jesus relationship with Zacchaeus. There's a room for brokenness in the relationship between Jesus and Zacchaeus. Hear me, friends. It's often easy to see the brokenness of others and think that's just a little too much for me. It's easy to see. The social condition, the heart, the actions of others and say, man, that's a little too much. Yet Jesus, this is the exact place he calls us to. When we make room, hear me, when we make room for brokenness in our friendships, in our relationships, it actually does the work of fighting against that selfish narrative because it takes the attention of the people in that relationship off of themselves. When we're in a relationship where brokenness has space and has room, it takes the attention of the people in that relationship off of themselves, even just for a moment. And it sets their attention on the needs, the hurts, the pain, the realities of the other person. Maybe it's, it's someone else's brokenness, but hear me, maybe it's yours. Right. Regardless, when we make room for brokenness in our relationships, it fights against the self-centeredness that runs rampant in relationships that that we have in our culture. 
right? Because it forces us to look at someone else's needs. It helps free us from the bondage of selfishness and, and to find ourselves uh, in this place that, that helps us grow in, in compassion and even just paying attention to the realities of other people in the world, of other people in our lives. It's a critical thing to make space, to just make room for people to be broken, to have needs, to not be perfect. In fact, to be kind of messed up. But here's the tough part, right? We don't have scarlet letters in our day. That's what makes this a challenge. There's very few things that cause someone in our culture to stick out almost at all. Right. Like like we have an extraordinary I mentioned earlier, an incredibly informal culture. So there's already not that like huge social expectation resting on us. But in addition, there's this idea now of like this subjective truth. Right. Where now people kind of just justify what they've done and and push it off to the side uh, and kind of justify their actions away. And then on top of all that, to make it even harder, we live in a culture that tells us uh, if you're not a part of that, just justify it away group, then you're on the other side. And the other side says, whatever is wrong with you, just hide it away as far back there as you can so that no one can ever find it, no one can ever see it. And really, you present your life as joyful, successful, and passionate. And so the thought of, of sharing these dark parts of our lives, these hurting parts of our lives, Uh, these dark desires, it feels completely unnatural, right? It feels completely counterintuitive, countercultural. And so we have all this going on in our culture, right? This subjective idea where people are kind of justifying away what's happening, what they're doing. Then you have this other side of people that are like, I just got to hide every bad thing that I've ever done. And we're left in the middle saying like, well, I want to make room for, for, for brokenness and being vulnerable. And it's like, well, how do I do that? How do we make room for brokenness in our relations when there seems to be all these roadblocks that instantaneously make it to where we can't create that space in our relationships? And can I be honest with you, friend? It starts with us. It starts with you. It starts with me. Right? If you desire to make that space, the culture is never going to influence the people around you to try to make it for you. Right? The only thing that's going to make that space is is really us creating and, and taking initiative to find that space. One of the things I think about when it comes to making that type of space is this, to, um, to resist the urge uh, to condemn brokenness around you. You know what will absolutely stifle the idea of somebody being vulnerable with you? When you can't stop judging the brokenness that you see around y'all. If the only thing you do when you see brokenness around you is to point it out, to condemn it, and to judge it, the person sitting with you, doing the laughing, doing the judging, doing the condemning, deep down inside is realizing moment by moment that they will never bring anything to you. Because the only thing they're going to receive is the very thing you're giving out in front of them. If someone sees you constantly judging others, their fear will become that you'll judge them. Another is this, to test the waters of vulnerability yourself. Test the waters of vulnerability yourself. Those around us, right, the reality, those around us aren't the only ones dealing with brokenness. So are you. So are you. We are too. Oftentimes, wisely, and hear me, wisely, it's an important word, wisely testing the waters of vulnerability by confessing and inviting others into your brokenness can create enough trust and enough space Uh, for them to know that they can share theirs too. 
right? It creates just enough trust in there uh, to allow others to come in. Now, I say wisely, and I say it's an important word because everyone knows that weird social feeling when that person that you don't really know starts like just vomiting everything to you, and you're like, oh, I don't quite know what to do with that, right? So there's wisdom in it, and I'm not going to act like that's, that's easy to decipher. It's not, but when I say wisely testing the waters of vulnerability, what I mean is putting something out there that may not be the most severe thing, but inviting them in to every aspect of your life, right? The more trust you build up, the more you're able then to invite people into the brokenness in your life, and, and the more trust hopefully they will have to invite you into theirs. Uh, but, but making it a progressive uh, work is probably important that way, uh, we don't go from, from zero to the dam just being completely open at one time because that seems to not work well. <laughs> I've tried it a couple of times. It didn't, it didn't happen. It didn't happen right. Um, but hear me. Before we move on, I do want to make two caveats to this, um, to this idea of making space for brokenness in our relationships. The, the first is that I'm not saying the purpose of relationships uh, and friendships is just to share brokenness. That's not what I'm saying. That is, that is 100% not what I'm saying. As though every time you get together, you have to bring up something serious. You have to bring up something important. You have to bring up something deep. Uh, that, that is not, that is not a, 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 a one-to-one correlation. Some of my best friendships were, were seriously built on a bag of chips and just a late-night binge of Netflix with my homeboys. Like that, that's where some of my best, most vulnerable, uh, deepest friendships have been produced just doing that. Right? So trust is, is a huge part of it. Uh, and sometimes that trust isn't built by going deep. That trust is built by going faithfully, uh, even when you're going faithfully through what seems like pretty chill waters. Right? So that's a big deal. Uh, and so not saying that it has to be like that all the time. I, I don't have quite enough time to share this, but I want to I share it just to make it an emphatic point a little bit with it. We have a couple of friends, Rachel and I, uh, where when they got engaged, uh, the, the husband and the wife, she had this thing that turned on where she basically said, well, we got to start working on our relationship before we get married. And so every time they had date night, she thought to herself, this is a great time to bring up what we need to work on. And it turned out to do their engagement. They didn't go on a lot of dates after that. <laughs> Those dates slowly just tape it off while my man was just like, no, no, you know what? We're just, we're just going to stay home. How about that? Let's just stay here. So it can definitely be overbearing. You don't want to be that type of overbearing. And so, so it's not, that's not the singular purpose. And the second caveat is this, that there are limits to this idea of making room in your relationships for brokenness. Uh, if you feel like someone's brokenness is abusive to you physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, um, that's the type of brokenness that you should not make a space for in your life, right? That, that, that does not, that is not something you should subject yourself to. You can confront it, you can speak into it, uh, but that's not something that you could make, you should make space for in your life, right? Nowhere within the scriptures is there this idea that you should make space to be abused, right? That, that, that's not quite a one-to-one correlation either. Uh, and hear me, experiencing someone's brokenness isn't the same as being abused by it. Right. When someone when you experience someone's brokenness and they've unintentionally done it and they are genuinely repentant and trying to change. That's one thing. When someone has intentionally, consistently, regularly uh, kind of just just hurled their brokenness on you. That's a different type of abuse. And, and that should not be tolerated. There's no room for that. Now, having having said that. Again, making space for brokenness is a critical rhythm here, a critical idea. Uh, because it fulfills what I believe is a huge part of God's purpose in relationships. And you might be asking why. Why is this idea of being vulnerable with my friends such a, a big deal? Uh, because, hear me, hear me, look at me. In order to be loved, 
In order to be fully loved, you've heard this before, you have to be fully known. In order to be fully loved, you have to be fully known. When we walk around only presenting one facet of ourselves, we trick ourselves into believing that that's the only facet of ourselves that's actually loved. Even worse, maybe that that's the only facet of ourselves that's lovable. When we walk around thinking, I only can present this aspect of who I am, it starts to trick our mind into believing the lie that that's the only version of me that's beautiful, that's the only version of me that's lovable, that's the only version of me that people will accept. And friend, like, listen to me, that's a lie. That's a lie. When we make room for brokenness in our relationships, we open ourselves up to today's second Uh, relational practice, relational rhythm, uh, and that one begins to deconstruct that lie and then to rebuild something in its place that's so much more valuable and so much more of a blessing to us. Uh, Let's go, check this out with me. Let's go ahead and go to verse five. We're gonna read through verse eight. Uh, We might leave nine and 10 on the cutting room floor, uh, but if, uh, email me, you want it. Um, Verse five says, when Jesus came to the place He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. Uh, He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions away to the poor. uh, And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. When Jesus sees Zacchaeus, he calls out to him and requests to eat with him and to come stay at his house as a guest. And, and hear me, this wasn't just like a brief lunch, right? This wasn't like, hey, you know, you got like, you got some sandwiches or whatever, insert your lunch food. But, but this wasn't this type of like uh, uh, low-key type of, of event. In this culture, to enter someone's house and to be someone's guest on this level was a deeply meaningful association. It represented friendship and togetherness um, that, that led the crowd, some in the crowd at least, to question Jesus himself and to say, look, he's going to stay with this dude Zacchaeus. But that didn't phase Jesus. That didn't phase him. Because he was determined to love Zacchaeus through his brokenness. To love him through his brokenness. To love him in the midst of his brokenness. It's one thing, hear me, to make space for brokenness but to keep pressing forward when you start to see the darkest parts, right? To start to listen and to lay down your life and to still care for someone. To say, I'm not really concerned about what someone else is saying about you. I love you, right? These moments when you begin to love someone through and in their brokenness, it begins to to shatter parts of our hearts that culture and that society and the enemy has tried to build up Uh, to build up and to lie and to tell us uh, are really the things that define us. Yet in these moments, there is this this idea of love and and of grace and of compassion that begins to just shatter those things. Right now, not only did Jesus make room for brokenness, but he loves Zacchaeus through his brokenness. And and look at the result. Look at the result. Zacchaeus' life is completely changed. He declares at the end, I'm going to repay everyone that I stole something from four times over. And everything beyond that, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. Hear what I'm saying with this. What Christ is showing us is that he didn't love himself and join himself to Zacchaeus after Zacchaeus got right. It was the love of the Savior in the midst of Zacchaeus' brokenness that made Zacchaeus right. In your life, 
right? In my life, in the people that we're friends with lives, we're living in a world that oftentimes tries to paint the picture that until you are right or you understand and think you're right, then that's the time you'll be accepted. But what Jesus offers us here in this moment as a follower of Jesus in our relationships is that what's broken needs love, not rejection. The parts that are broken aren't meant to be rejected. They're meant to be loved in order to be fixed, right? It was the love of the Savior in the midst of, of Zacchaeus' brokenness that actually leads him to repentance. It's the, it's, it's the love of the Savior in the midst of Zacchaeus' brokenness that, that quickens his heart to life. There are people in your life, there are friends in your life, in your social circle right now that are dead scared to let you into what they're going through, what they think, what they believe, because their fear is that you'll judge them. And here's the thing. The reality is some of those things are probably actually pretty dark. Some of those things are actually probably pretty bad. Your responsibility, my responsibility as a follower of Jesus is not to try to push those things off and let someone else deal with them. It's to make room in the relationship for them. And when they spring up and rear their ugly head, it's to begin loving them ferociously, intentionally, just just overwhelmingly, and then allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of breaking their heart and making them new and changing their life. Uh, yes, amen, right? Understand that the key uh, to hearts and lives being changed, whether it's yours, whether it's mine, those we're in relationship with, isn't that we somehow figure out how to change behavior, but it's to love them so deeply that it breaks behavior at its core and makes us new by providing new motivations, by providing a new heart. That's the love that we're called to take with us into our relationships, Right. John 15 or John 13, 35. Jesus says, this is how they'll all know you're my disciple, by how you love one another, how you love one another, how you love others, how you love the broken, how you love the Zacchaeus. That's what we're here to do. That's who we are. It's one of the reasons we planted this church east of 35 and what may be described by some as the hood. Right. Because we want to do hard things. No, because we want to make a name for ourselves. No, because we want to be where no one else is. No, because we're disciples. And disciples love broken people and seek and save the lost. Loving one another, loving the broken with the love we've received. But hear me, friend, you can't do that unless you understand that deep love personally. You can't do it. The moment you are encountered with a darkness that begins to unsettle you, you will never be able to give yourself to loving that person unless you're deeply acquainted with that love yourself. You can't help others see how loved they are in their brokenness unless you've looked at yours in the face, then looked at God and heard him say, you're forgiven. It's finished. I love you. You won't be able to do it. I 100 percent promise you. If you want to try, I invite you. And when you come back crushed, we will welcome you back lovingly because we know that you can't do it. Because he knows that we can't do it. Running to him is the solution. That's the answer. 
right? One side of our culture wants to tell us to go hide and to, 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 to pack away everything that we're ashamed of and everything that we're scared to show other people far away and to not let anyone see it while the other side of our culture tells us to go ahead and, and leave alone and justify away any guilt or shame but leaves us bound and, and enslaved to our brokenness still. Yet in the midst of all of it, Jesus enters with the good news that invites us to confront our brokenness, be forgiven given through his love on the cross, be made new, then take that same truth and that same love to a broken world, inviting them to see, to know and understand and receive that same truth. Right? What an amazing calling. What an amazing gift. Then in the midst of a culture and a world that wants to either leave you in bound to your brokenness still or leave you in shame at the fact that you're broken. There's a God who invites you to, to hear his voice that declares over culture's designation of guilty, over your designation of guilty or ashamed and say you're forgiven because I said so. And then it receives us and then sends us back out to say, now go take that reality to the rest of the world. That's our rhythm as we go into our friendships, as we go into our relationships, right? We make space for brokenness so that we can love through that brokenness, pointing those around us and others, appointing us, right, to the love that makes us new, to the love that makes us whole, to Jesus himself. That's the point. That, that's the purpose. Again, relationships and community, you've heard me say this before, they are a part of who we are as Christians, but they are not the answer. To, to our lives as Christians, right? Community relationships, they are a means by which we are pointed back to the one that makes us whole. That's where Christ is glorified, right? Through the brokenness of two or three or four or five or however many of y'all there is laid bare and Christ being seen as the one who comes in and makes us whole and makes us right, right? That's where Christ is glorified. That's who we are. As, um, as I was finishing up typing uh, this whole thing, I was uh, reminded of a scene in a show called Ted Lasso. Let's go. All right, there's like four people that are like, yes. All right. And you may be already kind of having in your mind what scene it is. Uh, if you don't know the story behind Ted Lasso, it's basically uh, an American football coach that goes to England to coach a soccer team, which he knows nothing about. And he's hired by this woman, his boss named Rebecca, who really has an underlying motivation to destroy the team because the only reason she owns the team is that she got it from a divorce settlement with her ex-husband. And he loved the team. He was obsessed with the team. And so she automatically hated the team and wanted to destroy the team. And that's the whole reason she hired Ted Lasso. This ignorant American that doesn't know anything about soccer. She can get them over to England across the pond and get them to fail, get the team to just relegate down. They lose sponsors. Everything goes bad. And then the team shuts down. And all of a sudden, her plan of destroying the team is successful all through this man, Ted Lasso. So she tries to sabotage him every chance she gets. Right. She tries to trick him every chance she gets. And through basically three quarters of the first season, it's just like. Rebecca is like Corella DeVille meets like Lex Luthor. It's just an incredible villain character. And about three quarters of the way through, she has this change of heart, right? Like Ted Lasso just keeps just pressuring her with love. Like the dude starts bringing her biscuits every day and he's just being this amazing guy. 
And so she starts generally having this, this change of heart. And one day she goes into his office and, and she's humbled and something's going on. And she says, Ted, and he's like, what's wrong? In his like classically country, lovable Midwestern accent. And she says, I have to tell you something. It was me that set up this interview. It was me that betrayed you here. I've been trying to destroy the team. And the only reason I brought you here was so that you could fail and we could go down. And her lip is trembling and she's emotional. She's overcome by the reality that she has hurt someone and that she has tried so evilly to destroy someone. And Ted Lasso has this concerned look on his face and he gets up and he walks over to her. And in this very classically Ted Lasso way that the show builds, he simply looks at her and goes, I forgive you. I forgive you. And the actress on the other side that plays Rebecca has this look of astonishment that sweeps over her face. And he looks at her, having just recently been divorced himself, and simply says, divorce makes you do crazy things. And he extends his hand to this woman, and she just jumps into his arms and hugs him and starts crying. That made me weep like a child. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it's because it points us to a deeper truth, friends. Uh, I can't remember his name, but there's an author. Uh, and he says, anything that moves you has a string that points us right back to the heart of the gospel. There's a reason I cried like a baby when I watched that scene. There's a reason maybe just hearing the story, you, you got a little emotional. It's because in the midst of our deepest pain, we're confronted with the realities of our lives. Right? The overwhelming truth that someone so beautiful, someone so caring, someone so compassionate, someone that's just so much infinitely better than us could look at us and out of a well of love that we just cannot understand, look at us and say, you're forgiven is an overwhelming truth, right? It's a part of the reason God sent his son to enter into the world, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died so that we could look at the beautiful heavenly father and receive the good news, you are forgiven. In your relationships, at work, at the park, at school, uh, in your community, in your family, the relationships you are part of are meant to be a blessing to you, 100%. But hear me, they are also meant to provide you platforms to declare the good truth that in the midst of our deepest, darkest, most painful moments of shame, guilt, we turn to a good and heavenly father that through the work of Jesus now looks at us and says, you are forgiven with absolutely no sentiment holding him back, but a pure, loving, compassionate, you are forgiven. That's the platform I hope we as a church community create in the relationships around us as we go out today, as we are sent out. I hope those are the platforms we're looking for in our friendships as we begin to make room for brokenness. And then we begin to love people in the midst of their brokenness, sincerely, right? To, to actually love them, to care for them. 
and to invite them to know the great truth and great compassion, the great grace that's been extended to all of us through the work of Jesus. I love y'all. Let's go ahead and pray and finish up today uh, and then head into our, our, our time of response and worship. Father, thank you so much for um, this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that even in the midst of our um, brokenness and our, our sadness, in the, mo- in, in the midst of the parts of our, our lives that are, uh, that are messed up, you give us the good gift of relationships that you never intended to be competitions between people, that you never intended to be um, these almost lifestyle runways where we get to basically come and say, hey, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and you're doing this and you're doing that, but rather we're always meant to be platforms on which we could declare the good news of Jesus, the forgiveness and grace given to us through the work on the cross that would encourage our heart, that would reinvigorate us, that would help us remember the great identity that's been given to us through your work. Father, help us to navigate and to cultivate relationships that function just like that. Father, help us to build relationships that, that don't just edify us, but rather glorify you through how your presence in the midst of those relationships edifies everyone in them. We love you. We thank you. We place this time and our relationships into your hands. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.